we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined today by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome to the show, Ken. Oh, it's great to be back, Trey. It's always fun to be back, uh, and and uh, today I actually get, we get to see that we have the same haircut, and that made me really happy. I don't know why that made me happy. Yeah, but that- <laughs> yeah we, we never knew that before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, this week, Ken, I think one of the big items that we're going to want to jump to right off the bat was happened way back on Monday night. Uh, Monday night, kind of maybe surprisingly, maybe not, the Senate parliamentarian uh, ruled that Democrats could have a third budget reconciliation bill in a single year. Now, this is kind of really big news because generally speaking, we've thought you've only been able to have two. So how do we get from two to three? Well, the idea is, is that you can pass a revised budget resolution uh, and the revised budget resolution can contain budget reconciliation instructions. In other words, it's another device to pass something uh, via reconciliation. Now, policymakers have enacted 21 budget reconciliation bills uh, since 1980, the first year they employed the progress, uh, the process, excuse me. Uh, Congress approved four other measures, but the president has vetoed them in the past. Um, Now, the White House is uh, undoubtedly hoping uh, that this is going to be a vehicle for the American Jobs Plan, which is uh, President Biden's infrastructure proposal. And so I thought we probably need to talk a little bit about that as well, because this is a $2.65 trillion plan concentrated over the next eight years uh, and combined with a little bit of a tax increase, which does not cover the entire cost of the plan, but hopes to bring the bill closer um, to revenue uh, neutral. Spread out over 10 years, the plan would increase the deficit by approximately $900 billion. So I thought we could talk a little bit about that on both fronts. So, Ken, why don't we start by talking about the budget reconciliation process and the parliamentarian's ruling. And then I thought maybe we could move on and talk a little bit uh, about the infrastructure bill that I think Biden is is hoping might be what the Senate uses that third reconciliation process for. Yeah, actually, on the process, it's even more remarkable than you said, because um, as you said, this will let the uh, Dems do um, three spending bills this year. Um, Now, it's not normally two. It's normally one. Um, The the only reason it was even going to be two this year is because um, when McConnell was still running the Senate in the in the fall, um, they didn't get a, a 2021 budget done. 
So um, the only they can that, do a current what, and a future yeah, year effectively. Yeah. 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 So in tw- in twenty twenty one, the Dems were going to have the chance to do the twenty 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 one, which they already did in the form of the COVID stimulus bill, um, and then the twenty twenty two, which they could do over the summer for the next fiscal year. But this lets them do another one in between. So it's it's a it's a I, I'm pleased with it. We talked about that last time we were on together, yes. and I. I I was hoping this would happen um, because I, th- I think as, as we've seen that the, the there's there's not really 50 votes um, uh, to overrule a parliamentarian um, among the Dems, you know, and so I think it, it, a whole lot does depend on how the parliamentarian rules on these matters, even though um, the 50 Dems plus Kamala Harris, if they if they if they were willing to do it, they have the power to overrule any parliamentarian's ruling. So norm- normally it doesn't really matter what the parliamentarian says, but under these under these unique political circumstances, I think it does. Yeah, I mean, generally you don't hear a lot about parliamentarians because, as you know, the Senate makes their they get to have the final decision making process on their own procedure. Uh, you know, it's always interesting because one of the things I think that uh, average individuals might not always think about is the unique processes of both the Senate and the House, right? They have their own unique uh, processes. The, the, the Constitution gives them the right uh, to create their own rules. Uh, the Senate considers themselves this permanent body, but they have all of these kinds of, I think sometimes what we think of as being arcane rules, but you're right. Parliamentarians make rulings on a regular basis, but they don't make national news because of course, if you don't like it, you just, you say, well, the parliamentary is wrong. Here, here's what the process is. Yeah, I mean, that's actually how we got the elimination of the filibuster for judicial appointments and for um, uh, um, executive uh, appointments. Um, The Senate never did change those rules. According to the text of those rules, all of those um, confirmations are filibusterable. Um, But when but when the uh, parliamentarian, you know, ruled as they always have in the past, you know, these are filibusterable. Um, What was called the nuclear option was when the the Senate voted to overrule those rulings. So um, so that is how those changes were made. Right. And that's always a good point. The nuclear option is when you are taking a vote to undo or change the rules or the processes by which you apply in the Senate. At least you can't do that in the House in the same way. Right. Right. In the House, actually, each 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 piece of legislation that's going to be voted in the House starts by um, they have to vote for what are the rules going to be by which this particular piece of legislation proceeds. So that so that's different than in the Senate where they have standing rules. That's absolutely true. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why even kind of an intro way. In the House, the most powerful committee is, in fact, the Rules Committee, because the Rules Committee is the is the group that gets the chance to put their fingerprints all over. Well, what are going to be the rules of debate for each and every piece of legislation that comes along Uh, in the Senate? Because they act by unanimous consent. uh, That means that that there's going to be uniform processes unless you have somebody who objects, which leads to this whole process of potentially having a filibuster and what we're talking about here, potentially undoing uh, a parliamentarian ruling. Yeah. Now, in terms of the the the, uh, the other thing about the process, I just want to say the, the although there's supposed to normally be only one um, uh, spending bill a year on reconciliation, but now this ruling means there could actually be three this year. Um, th- there's also that same non-filibusteral uh, reconciliation process is also available for one taxing bill and for one bill to raise the debt ceiling. So those well, kinds of bills can, can, can be three because it's uh, debt ceiling, taxing, and um, spending. Yeah, but these are the spending. So spending, there's going to be three now because the the first one, the the COVID stimulus bill, was the was the spending bill that we could think of as formally being the the federal budget bill for the year 
2021. I thought um, that they had actually that they had ruled that all three of those elements were in that one reconciliation. And therefore, because generally speaking, you could have three. But in the past, the history has been that all three of those elements were tied up in one reconciliation bill. And therefore, you didn't get all three. I, I think that bill actually counted once for all three of those boxes three? because oh, it, we, it can, you, yeah you could be right about that i didn't know that they raised any taxes in the stimulus bill but well, if they did and what it and what it does to raise tax it doesn't always have to be a specific tax increase but i'd have to look at those rules a little bit more carefully again ken but things fall into that uh taxing bucket that are not necessarily i think what the average individual would say oh that's a tax increase um things that end up affecting the deficit in certain ways can be i believe a tax but that we're starting to get pretty arcane we're a little bit more granular than even that i'm familiar with right off the top of my head (laughs) (laughs) The, the key the key big takeaway for listeners is that um in what in a process that can normally be only done once a year for for big spending bills is going to be able to be done three times this year yes Yes. So now why don't we talk? I I know that uh, last week they spent a little bit of time talking about it, so we don't have to spend a lot of time here. But this is undoubtedly going to be the vehicle that the Biden administration hopes uh, is going to be his his infrastructure plan um, or technically what's called the American Jobs Plan. And I'm, I'm curious a little bit about your take on this. Uh, one, to, to see if you think this is what the White House is going to want to put through um, reconciliation. Uh, and then two, you know, this is an area where we had, had had some disagreement a couple of weeks ago when we went. And I think we're going to probably have a little more disagreement in a minute when we talk a little bit about some tax proposals coming from uh, 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 Schumer. Um so what are your initial thoughts uh, on the uh, on the Biden uh, jobs plan? Well, you know, I can't say I've read all the different parts of it. Um, there's quite a lot in there. Um, oh, my goodness. But, yes. Like yeah, even, yeah, even yeah, when you're yeah, just doing yeah. the summary of it, you know, there, yeah. there's about seven major uh, broad categories, even before you get down into the details. So I, I can just say that the overall approach of it is is one that I'm I'm very happy about. I, I I'm sure you know if you go through it with a fine tooth comb, you'll be able to point out um, things in there that I might come around to agreeing with you. You know, or could could be wasteful spending. But, but I think that the I, I think that if you think about it systemically rather than kind of ch- chopping away at the individual provisions, you know, I think the idea of a a major uh, spending bill. That's designed not only to uh, do um, traditional infrastructure like like roads and bridges and things and and or or, or information infrastructure like um, broadband deployment, um, but also stuff that looks a lot less like um, traditional infrastructure, that, like investments in in human capital and things like that. Historically, black um, colleges, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I think all of that is is good. I think it's good that there's going to be a lot of spending on that, and I think it's good um, that there's going to be um, tax increases that are going to pay substantially for most of it um and and that um and that they are really going to be i think targeted in the right places it's going to be on business corporations and on people who uh earn above 400,000 and uh i i'm i'm for all of that you know, I mean, and sticking kind of with the broad strokes, because I think you're going the right direction there. Uh, I, I don't disagree with you on the front that I I don't mind, you know, even from my kind of you know my libertarian point of view, I don't mind uh, targeted kinds of spending. Uh, I do wish, though, that on the broad strokes, not without being nitpicky, that we could, in fact, have a bill that would be net neutral. In other, and specifically, for example, you know, just just as a quick look, you could say, well, if you just took out of this bill the um, uh, 
the 400 billion uh, on um, home health care things just right there, that would bring the bill to being a little bit more than, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, revenue neutral. Uh, And so this is one of the things that I think continues to bother me is that I really wish that Democrats would kind of live up to their uh, rhetoric of we're going to spend money, but we're going to collect that money as well. Right. Uh, And so from my libertarian side, especially when we see this is coming in, you know, we had talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, once again, a bill, uh, this one coming again, uh, 2.65 trillion, right? So again, we're, we're, we're talking in terms of levels of uh, debt. As a matter of fact, I looked at the Brookings because I knew that, you know, I, I kind of take a left view. So I like to kind of, excuse me, I take a right view. So I wanted to kind of see, well, what, what, what does the left kind of uh, summarize on this bill? And, you know, even Brookings, which is going to be a little bit more um, liberal of a source, uh, has argued that before this bill was going to go into place and before the last um, uh, before the last round of stimulus spending, uh, that we were already on track uh, to hit 118 percent of GDP uh, as deficit in nine years. And so I know that maybe I hammer on the deficit a little bit uh, harder. It's something that I hammered on with Republicans when they wanted to do it with tax cuts. But I see this being the same kind of fundamental systemic issue uh, that Republicans had. Only Democrats are, I think, a little cooler about it now because it's spending, which is their priority as opposed to tax cuts, which is is, Democrat, is Republicans uh, of uh, priority. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm going to say only 50% disagree with you and 50% agree with you here <laughs> okay. because I, 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 I think, um, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm more of a Keynesian and I, I think right now the economy is in transition from the pandemic economy, which needed quite a lot of help, um, into an economy that's probably going to be pretty good again in a year or two. And, uh, and, and I agree with you that in the, in the times of the boom, as opposed to the times of, of, of the bust, um, uh, the, the, the budgets should be balanced. And, and I, I think we're moving there. Um, now, I, I think that the, the um, you know, if you look at what the, you know, I don't want to just do straight whataboutism here, but when, <laughs> when, the, when the Trump tax cut came in 2017, that's $1.7 trillion in uh, revenue cuts, and mm-hmm. there were no spending cuts, right? Now, here, yeah. you, you know, there, there's... Um, and I agree you, with you on that, 100%. Yeah, yeah. so here there's there's $2.6 uh, in, or $2.6 trillion in, in spending increases, but I think one point about one point nine percent of it is one point nine billion of it is paid for roughly by these by these tax increases. So it's it's a smaller it's a smaller increase in the deficit. And also, I now think if you it took it could, if you took it alone in isolation, I think I'd be more willing to kind of move in your direction. But of course, you know, we, we already had this conversation on another yeah. bill. Right. So you start adding those together is what you end up having to yeah. do for a particular administration. And we're not and, you know, we're just 100 days in. Yeah, that's right. But I but also we're still in the COVID economy. So I, I think that the as again, as a Keynesian, I think it was OK that they did the stimulus bill um, with a lot of spending that wasn't paid for during a time when there was a huge hole in the economy. I, I think it, it really depends to me that, that, that it's OK to deficit spend in the in the in the depths of the business cycle. You got to balance it up in the in the in the booms in the business cycle. And and, and so I, I think we are, you know, that 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 stimulus bill actually is part of the reason why the economy is going to rapidly recover right now. You know, that, that people are going to be able to spend money um, even if they weren't earning that much money over the past year. So, so you know, people have pent up demand, but they also need money to pay for the things they have pent up demand for. And, and I, I think that that, that was a, a, a wise um, 
time to take on some debt. I also think, uh, you know, this could wind up being more paid for than it may look like today, because one thing that is sort of a, a, a work in progress now is I think Biden's kind of put it out there that he would like to see some bipartisanship, but that he's willing to go on a partisan basis if necessary. And that was really, yeah, yeah. So if you think about relating that issue back to this issue of deficit spending, you know, I, I think um, that, you know, if if Republican, I think the, the, the deficit is in part built into this. Um, so that the tax so that the tax increases won't even be higher you know and and i think if if no republicans come on board you know then it's very possible that this the shape of this could go towards like instead of instead of taking the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 maybe it'll go all the way back to 35 which is what it was before the the 2017 tax cuts um or um you know some other things are being talked about that aren't in the Biden plan but that some um democrats in the congress are talking about like um equilibrating the rates for capital gains income with the rates for ordinary income and so there are some some proposals in congress that would raise more taxes and that would close up that budget hole. And I think that, um, you know, those are kind of being held back in hopes that, um, well, Republicans don't want any of that. And maybe if some Republicans actually join, then we won't do any of that. But but if no Republicans are going to join anyhow, um, you know, you were talking about cutting the spending on home health care. But I think uh, Democrats on a partisan basis would say, no, we're not going to do that. The way we're going to close the budget hole is just by raising a few a few other taxes on corporations and on rich people. And I, I think that could be in reserve as part of what you'll see if it's another purely partisan bill. I, you know, here, I don't often make, I'm not usually the one in the show that makes predictions, but my prediction is, is that none of the proposals that may be waiting in the wings from Democrats are going to even come close to covering just the cost of the things they've increased you know, that they will increase over the course of the Biden administration. And, and I don't say that it's trying to hammer on Democrats specifically, but no administration, you, you have to go back to a weird uh, uh, Republican Congress, Democrat president during Clinton, the last time that we've really seen that kind of will to have a uh, a more, or as you put it, during the good times, let's make sure that we're you know being revenue neutral on that front. I, I don't think it's likely in in the current political environment. I mean, because who's going to want to suffer the the political fallout uh, from having uh, a, a, a higher taxes? Well, no, I, I'm not saying that the that this Congress is going to get us into budget surplus. I'm just saying that they're going to get this particular spending bill perhaps into surplus. Right? We're only oh, talking yeah. about the yeah, the exactly. I, I don't mean the whole. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I, I'm yeah, talking yeah, about the same yeah, thing. Yeah. I don't think we're yeah. even going to see the bills that we have seen over the course of the last hundred days. I don't. I don't think we're going to see revenue that equals that amount of spending, given the total amount of that spending. What it is? Because again, as we talked about, even just the the uh, COVID, uh, the la- the third round of uh, of COVID relief was approximately the size of of a fiscal budget year. I mean, the likelihood that that, that you're going to see tax increases or loophole decreases that will equal just that amount, right? So not the whole, I agree with you, let's kind of put the whole deficit aside for a minute, just the new spending revenue items, including things, if assuming that they use reconciliation uh, uh, on the Jobs Act as it is. Uh, I, I think it's doable, and I don't think there'll be so much political. I mean, the whole the whole thing about whether it's done on a partisan basis or a bipartisan basis is political uh, fallout from Republicans becomes irrelevant if Republicans aren't going to um, uh, join the bill, aren't going to willing to negotiate to, 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 that they might vote for the bill. I, I don't think that the um, I don't think there's been any political fallout 
against the first stimulus bill that the Dems passed um, uh, a few months ago. And, and I, I don't think it would be much different um, if they passed one now that spent on a lot of popular spending programs and that raised raised all that money to pay for it entirely by taxing uh, corporations and uh, people who um, earn more than four hundred thousand dollars. I just think that the Democrats are for all that. There's not going to be there's not going to be a fallout against that. So if there's no I mean, if we took that line of reasoning and we said, look, there's not going to be a fallout on it. Uh, so when you say you're, they're holding it back, do you think that they're waiting as well? So if Republicans won't come on board with this particular bill, they're going to modify the bill to put the spending items, excuse me, to put the uh, revenue generating items into this particular bill during reconciliation? Possibly. I think there'll be amendments offered that way. You know, I don't know which way they'll go, but um, I think Biden's also trying to signal that the reverse is also true. So this may this may exacerbate your concerns about uh, budget busting. <laughs> but, I, but I think, you know, Biden keeps saying I'm very open to compromise. And and I, I think it's true. Like, I think if, if, if a Republican senator would actually vote for the bill, um, if Biden agreed, OK, instead of raising uh, the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28, I'll just raise it from 21 to 25 if that'll get me your vote. Um, you know, I, I think Biden would make that deal. You know, and so I think if, if Republicans will come on board, it's probably going to bust the budget even more. Right? But, but I think if, if, um, if, if the Republicans are going to turn away you know, and say we're not coming on board no matter what, um, then there's no reason to lower it from 28 to 25. And in fact, there may be there may be you know, amendments to, to raise it, it all higher, way, but even higher. Yeah. Well, you know, since we're talking budget and we're talking these items, uh, you know, one of the other things that I thought we would uh, talk about this week uh, is the uh, is the salt tax. Uh, but before we get to the salt tax, uh, we're going to take a quick break for our uh, sponsors uh, and then we're going to be back and we're going to talk about uh, the salt tax. OK, so, Ken, uh, one of the items that we had that we wanted to chat about uh, was changes to the salt tax. I was a little surprised this week uh, because it was one that I think kind of flew under the radar. I shared it with our Discord uh, user. So for those of you who are part of our Discord group, you're that kind of you're that level of supporter. Uh, we get on and do things uh, for the show regularly. Uh, and I had shared a National Review piece. It was the one that actually brought it originally to my attention. Then I went and took a look at his. But Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's goal uh, is to repeal the limits of the state and local uh, tax deduction, or what we call SALT. Uh, what this is, is, is in 2017, um, there were tax reform um, limits placed on SALT. SALT is a deduction that allows citizens to write off their state and local tax bills when calculating uh, their federal taxes. It effectively lowers the federal taxes for those who, who face higher taxes locally and who simultaneously uh, itemize uh, their uh, uh, taxes. So Schumer and joined with Gillibrand uh, pushed was to end because in 2017, uh, salt was capped at $10,000 and they want to make it unlimited again. According to their own press release, Gillibrand goes far, so far as to argue that uh, capping at 10000 is, quote, a cynical policy passed by Republicans, end quote. Um, specifically, Democrats argue it is being taxed twice on the same income. Now, I'm going to take some issue with that particular view, uh, but I know that you take a different view. So what do you think about this move? I mean, since we were already talking a little bit about taxes, is this kind of the opposite of what you were just arguing, that uh, the Democrats are going to be willing to uh, increase uh, revenue generating on higher inc uh, income earners? Here's an example of where they'd actually, for their own constituents, like to lower it. 
Well, this isn't um, uh, an issue of, um, I mean, it's partly, of course, an issue of wealthier versus um, lower income taxpayers, as you say, but I think it's primarily an issue of whether blue state taxpayers have to contribute by even one more mechanism so much more than their fair share. Which, which they already were even before this, and then this just shifted that much more to the blue states. I mean, states states like California, New Jersey, New York are overwhelmingly already paying for the whole federal government. People in those states are, are paying so much more and getting so much less from Washington um, than, than people in the red states. And then this was just a, a Republican that measure. That is what that a redistributive sort of- policy is all about, though, right? You take it from certain higher income areas and certainly California and New York, if you're going to have progressive redistribution of policies, they're going to move it from a lot of high urban, high income centers to lower poor areas. Yeah, that's fine, but but it's and, and that's fine, but but this is about only putting extra taxes on people who live in uh, states that have higher taxes. What's well, not um, extra taxes? What you're asking for, this would be an example of an exemption from taxes. Extra taxes would be to say, well, if you live in a state with a certain amount of whatever, we're going to charge you more than we charge the average person. Uh, this actually allows you to reduce your tax liability uh, by the amount that you pay in state and local taxes. So that, that would actually be, I mean, that's a, that's a tax cut. No, because people who uh, have to pay higher taxes don't, don't get that money that they're paying in taxes. So, so they're having to pay double taxes on money they never get. Um, but that's, I mean, that's historically always been, I mean, that's, that is maybe the, one of the curses of federalism is the fact that uh, one, enti- one sovereign entity's tax rate does not interfere with the other sovereign entity's tax rate, which has long been a, been a, been a potential uh, uh, a sore point or a complaint, I agree. No, the Internal Revenue Code for certainly my whole lifetime, I, don't, I think for as long as it's been around, has, has um, until they changed it in 2017, um, did allow a deduction for for state and local taxes. I, th- I think 2017 was the first time that the federal government tried then? to tax Isn't tax it, money. Doesn't that start in the 1980s? No. No. When does that start? Well, I I, I very I, long time ago. I have to look at. That. I don't know that one off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, but I'm going to be yeah. honest. Yeah, that I, I I think for as long as there've been um, uh, income tax rates. I mean, maybe in the very earliest days when the income tax rates were only one percent, it wasn't like that. But for as long as we've had significant federal income tax rates, um, the money that was paid in state and local taxes has not been taxed. This was a dramatic change from uh, from 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 precedent. But of course, this is a this is a tax cut that is specifically for wealthier individuals. I mean, it, 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 what's fascinating about this to me is it, it feeds into the true narrative here, which is that it's not really about revenue generation and it's not really about redistributionist policies. It's about specific redistributionist policies for Democrats. They want redistributionist policies for particular individuals, not individuals in their own their own constituencies. For example, salt does not help the average individual. The average individual is taking a standard deduction and therefore is not eligible for salt. Uh, you have to be making no, enough the, money the average- for itemized uh, deductions, which means you are at least upper middle class before that's going to become um, a real and true possibility uh, for you on on taxes. Right. I mean, no, I don't agree with that. The average homeowner um, uh, was taking these deductions because property taxes are part of it. So if you've got a, particularly the average two income family that owns a home, so I think substantially all two un- income families that own a home in a state that has an income tax 
would have would have taken this deduction. Now, you you could say that the, everybody who fits that category is at least upper middle class, but I'm, yes, I'm not. Would be. Uh, uh, yeah, you think every every household that has two working adults well, and you, owns a home, even if you're making a relatively low amount of money individually. So let's say you're making fifty some thousand dollars a year per couple. You're now making over a hundred thousand dollars a year as uh, as a unit, and and that firmly puts you in the upper middle class once you hit a hundred thousand uh, dollars. Now, I will agree that doesn't put you in kind of the uh, the ulti ultra wealthy uh, category, um, but you you have certainly um, hit a new level of uh, uh, of income. I, I don't think I don't think we disagree on that particularly. Well, right, it wasn't. I agree, it wasn't a it was not something used by poor people, but I think it was used by a lot of um, middle class people. I mean, the American tax policy has promoted home ownership, and so the idea of promoting home ownership. Um, you know, that's something that's going to benefit people who actually become homeowners. Um, but but there's social benefits, I think, in promoting homeownership. Well, it benefits certain social homeowners. It benefits social homeowners in particularly expensive states where homeownership is a large proportion of uh, your bill. It also, as you noted, uh, encourages certain kinds of individuals. So individuals where two uh, family members are working or you happen to have a single uh, income household that has a particularly high bill. So, I mean, there's I'm not saying that you you can't make a case for that. What I'm saying, though, is, is that this clearly flies in the face of that idea of having a, a, a of a progressive redistributed process, uh, uh, um, tax code. Right. I mean, the idea that somebody at the hundred thousand dollar level is going to receive a tax cut and that that's going to be a big item uh, for uh, Schumer in a, in a year where we already have uh, deficit spending shows that. I don't think he's as committed to this progressive ideal as he really says he is. That's one of my problems with Democrats. You're wrong because the someone who earns even a two, a two, a a two working person household that earns one hundred thousand dollars to use your example, if they have to live in in New York or California, which are expensive places um, and they have to pay a lot for a home already. Um, and they're already, um, uh, you know, their state, you know, is everybody in their state is contributing more um, than those states are getting back. And all that money is being sent over to the red states. It's just it's just extra punitive. It's just extra punitive. It well, see, makes the, I'm, I, so I, I like that you use that word punitive, I, you know, and I'm going to agree. I don't disagree with you. There is a nature of punitive. But once you start talking about that in terms of being a punitive, you've come over to my side. Right. And you're suggesting that tax imbalances at a certain level actually become punishments. Well, no, because if you take not- that view, you're, you're on a libertarian, you're, you're welcome to libertarian <laughs> land. No, because it's not based on um, uh, the, uh, the, the thing that's punitive is that it's specifically designed to punish people for living in blue states. That's what's punitive about it. It's not it's not about their income level. People in New York and California were always willing to pay uh, more taxes than everybody else. But it's just extra punitive to say, you know, it's not because you're earning more income that you have to pay more taxes. You have to pay more because you're earning more income and then you have to pay an extra even more because you happen to live in New York or California. Well, uh, but of that's course, the, the extra is because your state has opted to have a particular tax bracket that is higher than other states. I mean, that's not I mean, that's only punitive in the sense that you those states elected individuals who have, according to their constituents, placed a tax rate that is at the rate that it is for for New York or California, whereas other states in their representatives working for their votes have placed tax rates at different levels. So 
to suggest that then because you also have to pay the federal tax rate says, well, if I'm going to tax myself a lot locally, well, then I should get a national break because, well, of course, I have to have higher New York's uh, state tax. Well, of course, you don't have to have higher New York state tax. New Yorkers have opted via their representatives and rightfully so. There's nothing wrong with that to have the tax rates that they have. But I don't see why that should give them so each of these yeah, so states. Let me, let me give you, let me come at this a different way yeah. Be, because so I'll just use California this time, although I'm from New York, but because California Where are you from Ohio, uh, okay, I'm, I live in Ohio now, <laughs> but actually this, this punishes me even in Ohio because uh, between the Ohio is a fairly average state for both state income tax and state um, uh, local property tax. But, um, but I, I get hurt even here in Ohio by by the uh, salt uh, uh, cap. Um, but but I wanted to put it more in terms of California because California has been willing to invest in um, good public education, the University of California system, um, uh, in, in 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 good roads so people can get around, in, in some mass transit projects so people can get to work. That those investments have actually enabled Californians. To make higher income, and because those investments enable Californians to make higher income, Californians are already paying more tax than people in other states because they have higher income than people in other states. But they have that higher income because their state made those investments. So California's um, higher taxes actually yields um, benefits to everybody outside of California because it it produces a, a state full of people who can earn higher income and pay higher tax on that higher income. So effectively, what, what you're trying to get away from here is so because of the choices of states, and they can be good ones. I, I'm not disagreeing with you. So California is a great example. They have decided to invest uh, more than many other states in the surrounding West, for example, uh, in education. They do have a, a very large and highly funded uh, university system. Um, and so because of that, they have benefits like now being higher income earners. Okay, and they pay federal taxes on that higher. Exactly, income. but that's that's They're progressive. That is progressivism. Progressivism says you make more money, you pay more yeah. taxes. Yeah, so I think that's it, fine. I just don't think it's good to penalize people because they live in a state that made those investments. Um, but in this know, case, like in, in your view, then the state that made the best. So let's say you had a state where everybody became a billionaire. I mean, you could say woohoo, but if you're a progressive, you're still going to have to argue that those billionaires need to pay their fair share of progressive taxes. And that would mean that the people in that state would be paying a higher percentage than the rest of the states. True. But that but that is that is a redistributive policy. Yeah, I'm for that. I think they should pay higher if they're billionaires. I'm just saying they shouldn't pay extra, an extra penalty above that because they're billionaires who live in California that, that, that billionaires in Texas wouldn't have to pay. Well, I mean, so because what you're trying to say is, is that, I mean, ultimately, you don't like the fact that some states have determined via their own legislatures to have uh, uh, lower, oftentimes, maybe let's even using that logic, uh, worse particular outcomes in their state. uh, But because they're doing it that way, they don't have as high taxes. Therefore, they're getting some kind of advantage. They are getting a huge advantage because well, they're getting they, one they advantage, be... but even in your argument, they're losing out on these other things, right? They're no, not they're, getting they're being... the investments in education system. They don't have the same kinds of road systems. They don't have those things because, of course, their state wasn't taxed. So if your argument is they true, get them because they're subsidized by everybody from the blue states, which they are. You know, there are interstate highways in red states, and that's because they're paid for by people in blue states. Um, they, they do get those benefits and they get them as transfer payments already. 
I, so I see, I'm going to have to disagree on, on this one. This is one where I think we actually just have a fundamental disagreement in that you, like, you're all for redistributive policies until it happens to be the case that a blue state would be subsidizing red states in major ways because, well, I don't like the fact that red states are winning out in this particular redistributive process. Um, well, let me let me look at some actual numbers here before we move away from this. I just found sure. these on the on the Internet. So let me look at, for instance, New York and New Jersey, and then you can pick some some red states I should look at. But okay. I'm going to tell you the numbers that are um, how much these uh, how much more do the tax federal taxpayers in these states send to Washington than what they get back from Washington. So New Jersey sends twenty four point seven billion more to Washington than it gets back. And that's $2,748 per capita um, that New Jersey sends to Washington more than it gets back. For New York, it's $24.1 billion, and that's $1,216 per capita more than it gets back. Now, if you if you just name any red state, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the number for that state. Um, take a look at uh, Florida. All right. Florida. Um, just take me a second to get here. Uh, it's, uh, uh, sorry. Okay. Florida, Florida, uh, gets, uh, Florida receives 62.4 billion more than it sends. And that's receiving 2,977 per person more than it sends. So there's this massive transfer from New York and New Jersey to Florida already. And all this salt cap does is just make that even more extreme. And there's plenty of billionaires in Florida, by the way. I don't disagree. But see, here, here, so here's what I want to hammer, though, is, is that I hear you and I agree with the frustration that you have there. But what, I, what I'm suggesting is, is that the frustration is born of the fact that redistributive policies create winners and losers that are frustrating for the winners and losers and that nobody ever wants to fall on the win- on, on the losing side. So I don't disagree with you. I mean, that's not fair in, in my sense of uh, a fair. So I don't you know, I, I'm not I'm not attempting to, to argue that. But in the sense that if we're if we're going to take the ethos that we need to have redistributive policies, then pointing out that there are imbalances, they're either going to be to have a redistributive policy, it either has to be regional, it has to be some kind of categorical distinction between some somebody is putting in, some groups of somebody's are putting in a lot more than other groups of somebody's, and you're going to always be able to slice it up, again, either categorically or regionally, who's the winner or the loser. I mean, yeah, how I, else would I get you do that? that? But, well, I, I, I think that's formally correct, but substantively wrong, because <laughs> okay. I, I think, I think for, formally your logic is right. But I think the reason I'd say it's still substantively wrong is because there's certain, um, I think, moral principles for, for redistribution that are acceptable to, to people who are on the giving end. Like I, I am, uh, my household is an above average income household. I, I agree that above income, above average income uh, um, uh, uh, households should pay more in taxes and that should be redistributed to poorer people. It bothers me not at all that I pay more taxes than a lot of people who have less money than me. I think that's perfectly fair. Um, but I think the design um, of, of the 2017 limitation on, on salt taxes was to say, well, 
because Republicans took control, they want to find a way to make Democrats pay more taxes than Republicans, uh, or at least people who live in Democratic states, and uh, and that that's the design of, of the SALT tax limitation. I don't think that's a morally fair basis for redistribution the way um, rich to poor is a morally fair basis of, of redistribution. Well, I guess the last thing I'll kind of say is, is, is why I understand that you're making that moral distinction. My suggestion is, is that even if we take the, uh, the states that you have listed out, I don't know how you would create a system in which, because California, New York, especially where you uh, have some of the most, you know, the largest population and earning uh, centers and some of the largest capital centers. I don't know how you're going to have a system that won't also be regional in the sense of moving from blue to red, given the, uh, the, uh, the wealth, dis- the, 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 the wealth distribution between red and blue states. Now, your point earlier, I, I don't, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not even attempting to disagree with, right? I mean, you might have these higher taxes to do it. But if we're trying to meet that moral principle that you're talking about, I'm not sure how you do it without having a a tax system that, however you slice it, will send money from some major blue states to a lot of red states. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine sending money from um, major blue states to to, to, to red states uh, if it's based on wealth. And that's that's what was already happening before 2017. But I just don't like the piling on and saying it's not just going to be wealthy to poor. It's going to be wealthy to poor. Plus, it's going to also be blue to red on top of wealthy to poor. Um, just to I, I, just, I guess what I'm saying is I think that those those I think those categories are so overlapping. It's going to be difficult to actually distinguish that. Uh, and and just, I <laughs> just repeal the salt tax cap and then you've distinguished them. You know, I think that's all you need to do. Oh, one last thing on this. Then we need to move on. I think Pre- President Biden actually already said um, because he was hearing the kinds of things that you're saying that he's actually open to the idea of um, uh, not um, um, of maintaining the, the $10,000 cap um, for the taxpayers uh, who are over 400,000, right? So that he would only, he would only repeal it um, for the taxpayers who are uh, under 400,000. Yeah. Um, so that so that might be um, a way to satisfy both what both of us are saying, actually. And that's true. And that's true. And it's also always a little bit ironic because, right, because we, we we undoubtedly probably fall in different uh, tax prices as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, OK, so now maybe we'll move away from something. I, I like see it's fun, though, when we get a little contentious every now and then. Yeah. So listeners, <laughs> you guys always seem to point this out. You're like, this is the time. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to move to next, we're going to have a break, but we're going to move to Biden's uh, this uh, Friday, he actually, uh, President Biden released his gun control executive orders. Uh, and so we're going to be taking that on in just a minute. Biden's gun control executive orders. We come back from this uh, break. OK, so we're going to be talking about uh, Biden's gun control orders. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, on Thursday, Biden announced that, quote, this administration will not wait for Congress to act and will take steps its own uh, concerning gun violence. Uh, and it has taken over the last 24 hours Six immediate actions that they have released. Um, one, they have issued that the Justice Department needs to have a proposed rule uh, in the next 30 days uh, to stop the proliferation of so-called ghost guns. This is uh, uh, weapons that can be or the pieces to weapons that can be purchased and then assembled uh, once you have a receiver. So you can actually ship all the pieces but a receiver around the country. That doesn't count as a weapon. Uh, so that's what number one is really about. Uh, the second 
is to have the Justice Department issue a proposed rule to make clear when a device marketed as a stabilizing brace effectively turns a pistol into a rifle. Uh, For those of you uh, who don't shoot right now, really anything that you can hook up to a pistol uh, does not count as really a weapon piece. Uh, And that's been a longstanding, as a matter of fact, a lot of uh, gun aficionados have always pointed to this, to some of the, they like it, but they see it as being kind of ridiculous why rules don't make sense. But anyway, uh, you can turn a pistol effectively into a rifle-like device by having effectively a really long brace um, that kind of comes up and into your shoulder. Um, third, the Justice Department um, is going to publish a model red flag legislation uh, that states could adopt. Uh, so obviously this wouldn't become a national law, but and then the hopes that uh, states would do this. Uh, fourth, an announcement that the American Jobs Plan, and the, what we, uh, Ken and I were talking about a minute ago, uh, in part would increase spending on community violence intervention programs. Uh, fifth, have the Justice Department begin issuing annual report on firearms trafficking. Uh, and then six, uh, which is a rather big deal, uh, President Biden nominated David uh, Chipman to serve as the director of Bureau of National uh, Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, ATF, uh, the first uh, director to hold that position since 2015. So presidents often want to take immediate action. This is kind of right up my wheelhouse. So reading the executive order just kind of took me back to, to teaching uh, presidency uh, that how Hall, uh, envisioned that you wanted to bypass Congress gets things done. And of course, they can do that through executive actions, but they're constrained. Right. And we can see here, you know, most of these things that we're seeing here aren't some big, giant executive action. These are rule proposals or suggestions for states. Uh, and so they are evidence of Presidents can do some things immediately, but of course, there's limits to what they can do. And even what they can do can always be undone by future presidents when they when they go the executive action route. Um, so, Ken, what do you think about these proposals? I, I, I'm sure that they probably don't go far enough for you personally, but uh, do you feel... I, I, I shouldn't be answering for you. You're standing right <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, actually, I, I don't know what I, I agree with everything you said, because the there's really only a little bit that a president can actually do here. And I, I, I didn't know about this ghost gun issue. But now that I read about it, it does seem to me that that one rule may be significant, that there may there may actually be a significant number of people who wouldn't pass a background check, who are um, buying these kits, which you don't need a background check for, and then building guns. Because they're not um, a weapon. They, they don't it, have a receiver. Yeah. 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 So, so and, and there, yeah, no serial number on the weapon or anything like that. And it makes it easier to use in crimes. So I, I feel like that rule um, is, is a significant exercise of executive authority. Um, it seems to me like a legitimate uh, exercise of executive authority because it's, um, you know, if, if, the, if the types of guns that are being built are, are types of guns where the statutes already say there should be a background check and a, and a serial number, then I think it's a legitimate use of executive authority to say that applies even if you build the gun yourself. Um, I, don't, I don't really think of that as like legislating so much as interpreting existing law. Um, the other ones all seem like kind of small beer to me. Um, probably the nomination seems like the other one that's important um, uh, because there are some gun laws on the books. And um, the executive branch's job is to enforce the laws that are on the books, and they've been fairly under-enforced for a while. And so I think just getting someone in there who actually wants to enforce the existing laws could be something. Um, but the, the other ones all strike me as basically nothing. I don't, I don't know what, what you think about that. Yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, the ghost gun is probably the biggest one. It's also going to be probably the one that has the most um, agitation from uh, NRA. You know, per, you know I, I am a, a conservative libertarian. Uh, I'm 
I like shoot. I'm, I'm even be honest. I shoot weapons. That's, um, uh, but, uh, I, I think sometimes there is a lot of a, um, much ado about nothing on the right when it comes to some of these proposed rule changes for average, you know, non-problematic gun op- owners, you know, the idea that you're going to have to, you know, have a serial number attached to your receiver or, you know, some kind of, I mean, we don't even know what the proposed rule is going to be. I get a little frustrated with some of my colleagues who would agree with me and maybe some of the outcomes, but we disagree on some of these principles where I would be more inclined to be with you and say, you know, I'm okay with that. Or the fact that we might want to mark, uh, you know, have different, you know, uh, the stabilizing braces. I understand that one as well. I mean, you, that having, uh, having had and, uh, used those kinds of things, I can say that that effectively could make uh, a weapon a far more usable, um, far more easy to use in a, in a, in a negative way situation, those kinds of guns. Now they haven't been generally because I think the weapons that are often used for nefarious purposes have not often been as modified. I think, um, at least in my, uh, you know, looks at it, but I agree with you in the sense that I think that's probably the one that's going to have the most potential teeth in it. And I honestly don't, it's probably time to be thinking about that kind of stuff. I wish Congress would think about this in a more holistic way. And, you know, for that last item, when we're thinking about ATF, you know, even now, as I was, you know, I was putting that to put in the show together this week and thinking about it. And it's fascinating that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms still exists, even with that name and in that format, because that's really a legacy of thinking about uh, mobs and mobsters. Right. When really, I mean, I, I think even the name and some of the purposes of that shows that Congress has not even attempted to have. Whenever you think the legislation ought to be, there have been no attempts to modernize that legislation or that agency. Again, what's I mean, we, we don't have mobs running around today trying to bootleg. And, you know, that's not where we're seeing the gun running. And yet that's still what our, you know, and that's still what our institutions are, are predicated on. Uh, so, you know, having a director there, will, I think, will be a big deal. But I think those institutional structures are, you know, probably 80 years out of date. Yeah, so on this, we're, we're in complete agreement on everything, I think. And one more thing, <laughs> one more thing I will agree with you on. Um, you know, I, I, I actually don't think the president should be the primary, should be trying to make the laws. You know, and I, I think, um, you know, Biden did what he could do within the structure of the law. I, I think the, the present Congress, you know, isn't going to, the votes aren't there to do much more. And, and I don't think he should bang his head against the wall um, to, to fail, which I think would, would really happen, actually, trying to work with this Congress. What I would like to see as someone who does favor more gun control is I'd like to see state legislatures in states that are willing to do it pass more gun control laws. And I'd, and I'd like to see uh, the federal courts leave, the, leave, that, leave them alone to do that and not, not uh, invent a bunch of new Second Amendment rights that were never heard of before. And, you know, I think right now that, that if, if there's, you know, I, I, I can't fault President Biden, though, for not doing enough. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of room for him to do a lot more than what he did. And I, I think President Obama was in the same boat um, a few years back, you know, after the Sandy Hook shooting and that kind of thing. You know, he made some small executive orders like this, but there's just not room for the president to just make up gun control laws out of whole cloth. And I, you know, I, I need to give Biden and, and you said it there, but I want to make it even more explicit. I would want to uh, give Biden some uh, credit on that particular front uh, because I think it is easy. It is especially easy from the outside looking in to want presidents to do everything. 
right? Uh, and to do to, to do potentially good things, right? So you know whatever your your predilections are, you want them to act at, act immediately. But I think it does show signs of a mature individual. Uh, no, no pun intended, uh, but you know uh, a, a, a thoughtful politician to say, you know, I do have limits to my power. What are the things I should be doing here? And, and I think. The fact that he is not attempting to do everything via an executive order or go beyond the bounds of what really executive orders should look like, it could be frustrating for those who maybe have a, 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 a deeper desire for more rapid change uh, on gun policy. But I think it indicates a president who is savvy and recognizes and understands the constitutional constraints of the presidency while also trying to move the policy in a direction that he thinks is positive. Uh, and so I think this is an I think this right here is a good example of where while I don't always agree with Biden on all of his substantive policies, I can agree that he is structurally doing things that I can be I, I can be OK with. And this is why, you know, I was happy voting for Biden was, listen, I, I don't necessarily agree about ever, all his positions on gun control, but I can respect the way that he's going to going to push that forward. And he's going to respect the bounds uh, of the executive office. And I think he, I, I think sometimes we don't give um office holders enough credit for that. You know, we we tend to idolize the big motions of like the FDRs who tried to do everything whenever they could uh, and the Rose, you know, uh, and the Teddy Roosevelt's. But I think there's an, e- an equal case to be made for this kind of Biden motion to say, well, there are limits here as well. And I, I think he should be lauded for that. So we yeah we're we're right on the same page on this one. <laughs> we'll see. There we go. We went from we disagree completely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <to> right. <laughs> uh, so why don't we move forward and talk about something else that has been uh, vexing? At least I don't. I mean, this is this really is this really is one that is I think part actual policy and part perception of policy, and that's the COVID uh, passport issue. Uh, or the so-called COVID uh, passport issue. What, what's been going on with this is that many countries, especially in the European Union, uh, have been working on the so-called vaccine passport. And, and effectively what that is, is a centralized way of tracking uh, vaccination records, or in this case, one particular vaccination record, the one related to COVID. It also oftentimes get ties up in thoughts of um, technology, because many of these COVID passports are attempting to do it through digital means, meaning there'd be some more permanent, easy way to access your uh, uh, record via your phone so that if you wanted to go to some kind of event or venue and you're either your employer or perhaps you know, the MLB wanted to have only vaccinated people or a, or a vaccinated only location, which apparently a couple of um, just this past week, two baseball teams will have vaccinated sections for their uh, ballparks. So if you'd want to be able to be in the vaccinated section, an easy way to show this. Uh, but this has really been a flash cultural flashpoint for many uh, leading two states, including Texas and Florida, to outlaw even the possibility of so-called uh, uh, COVID vaccines or excuse me, COVID passports, not vaccines. Um, the White House has already argued that there will be, quote, no federal vaccination databases, end quote, or, quote, federal mandate requiring everyone to obtain a single vaccination credential, end quote. 
Um, yet the underlying reason for wanting these vaccinations comes primarily from businesses and schools that are worried um, that individuals might not come if there is not evidence of people um, getting vaccinated. Now, this actually gets a little bit in, into into uh, legislation in a case that I, so I'm always happy when I can pull out a case that I know, Ken, because I know like, you're the con law scholar, but I, I know just enough around the edges to feel kind of smart sometimes about this. Uh, but, uh, you know, theoretically, government entities can do this, uh, and that comes from Jacobson v. Massachusetts in 1905, uh, where the Supreme Court ruled that a community has a right to protect itself against epidemic of disease, which threatens the safety of its members. In other words, it was upholding a law um, that required residents to be vaccinated or pay a fine. And I was just thinking about that, you know, in this current climate, can you imagine if a state had a get the COVID vaccine or we, you know, we, uh, fine you a thousand dollars or some man like that everybody would think the microchip is happening uh and you know in our in our own institutions this has come up um rutgers started off at the week being the first institution uh to say they were going to require vaccinations for students they have been followed up uh later this week including today by brown and cornell um uh, and already they're working with a number of different app providers to make this uh the case Israel, a country we're going to be talking about in the bonus show, Ken, uh, already has the Green Pass, which is effectively a uh, COVID uh, passport. So what do you think both about uh, the kind of the post-pandemic future when we're thinking about vaccination and who's been vaccinated, who hasn't been vaccinated, and also kind of this, this is clearly becoming kind of a Mahumian political it's a talking point issue whether or not it always has substance behind it uh, as well. So kind of on both fronts, the the substantive and then as this now cultural thing that's emerging about, you know, the vaccine, the, the passport. Yeah, I mean, the, the the cultural thing kind of rolls into the substantive thing a little bit the way I think about it, because to me, um, you mentioned the Jacobson case from 1905. Did I get that Jacob- right? Because I, yeah, I mean, of course. Okay. Yes, yeah. written, by, written by the great Kentucky Justice John Marshall Harlan, who famously yes. uh, dissented from Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, uh, he, yeah, it's, it's, so it, it's been established for a very long time that, that government has the constitutional authority to require people to get vaccines um, and also to do things like show that you've got the vaccine, for instance, to send kids to public school or something like that. So I, I think substantively, you know, there's the, the governments definitely do have this authority if they want to pass these laws. But I, I think because of the, you know, a certain segment of the population um, is very opposed to, to, to these kinds of laws and and probably would, would violate them. Um, you know, you do have to think that that affects the, the wisdom of, um, you know, if, if these laws are actually passed and enforced. You know, and, and people are going to have to be arrested and taken to trial and things like that or turned away. You know, what 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 is is the is the is the cure worse than a disease here to, you know, to, to use a metaphor. And I, I wonder about it because, you know, the, especially if they can get the vaccine rolled out to children, which it seems to be on the way. Um, I know As a matter some, of fact, some... uh, Pfizer just asked uh, to do it to 12 to uh, 18. Yeah, because I think right now the the best um, the best justifications for right now that I can think of for why uh, states should really throw their weight around would be to protect children who can't get vaccinated and who would who would be getting the, the the getting the disease from people. But if we get to a point where children can also get vaccinated, um, and then the only people out there in public who aren't vaccinated 
you know, they're running their own risk that they're going to get the disease. It's not going to bother anybody else if they do. Um, then at that point, I'd said rather just let them have the liberty to get the disease if they want it. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to get the disease. I'm fully vaccinated. You know, and, and I think uh, I think at a certain point it doesn't it doesn't help. It doesn't accomplish anything to, to try to use the force of law against people. Um, to save them from themselves, from from their own stupid decisions, um, even where I think that the, the 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 I do believe as a constitutional law matter, the governments would would have the power to do that. They'd be within their authority to do all that. But I'm not sure I see the wisdom of it, uh, except for the purpose right now of protecting children who don't have that option. You know, I think right now they don't have the option to get vaccinated, and they shouldn't be um, forced to. If, if they want to go to the to the to the Cubs game to to to, to run the risk of getting uh, um, getting getting COVID because they can't get the vaccine yet. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and this for one of the things about uh, the vaccination that has run an interest uh, is, has run a gamut has been the, at the beginning of the debate over vaccines before we got to COVID. It was really ironically kind of a, a California, a little more left leaning issue. Uh, and it always kind of baffled me that that's where, you know, it started. But it was it, it was weird to have, you know, a lot of Republicans going like, what's what's up with all of these like crunchy leftists who they want their kids to get the measles? And you know, we had you know, there was some outbreaks in, in the Pacific Northwest, um, which is, I guess, one of the things that has always concerned me. We don't really know what's going to happen with herd immunity when you have the outliers that you talk about. Um, you know, one possibility is, is, is that more like the flu vaccine that it it won't impact individuals who've had it. But of course, there's always a chance of failure. And you know, what's that percentage rate and how does that work out? It looks positive. And, you know, I, I hope we are now both vaccinated. So we're we're both we're we're rolling the dice the way I'd want to do it. Right. I mean, I mean we were talking about the show began. Yeah, yeah. I'm two weeks out. Right. Like, so, you know, so if somebody decides to cough into the ventilation system, I should be OK. <laughs> um, but uh, but, you know, and then. You know, it moves, it shifts. And so then once you get to the post, once you get to COVID, suddenly all of the anti-vaxxers, the original anti-vaxxers have shifted and, and they're, oh, it was time for the vaccine, which kind of shocked me. We're at the same time, everybody who was like, you need to get the measles vaccine is now saying, I don't know about the science on this. And it, it, it's been a weird, it has, in other words, it has shifted spectrums and political ideologies in a way that I was not anticipating. And I'm, I'm, you know, and so now that we have this passport, it's one of these things, it's not quite as easily, you keep thinking it might be a left, right thing, but it keeps like a disease. It keeps morphing <laughs> and, you know, and infecting different ideological strands. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the other element to this that I think that is unique. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that till you said it, but it is true that um, anti-vaxxing, uh, I think, did start mainly in the left, and it, it did it did shift over certainly to the to the Trump wing of the right. Now, I think there are particularly in communities like the African American community, there's still some anti-vaxxerism on the left there as well. It hasn't completely uh, disappeared from the left, although I think it's disappeared from the college-educated. Uh, Sort of, you know, progressive left, I guess. But yeah. It's, um, yeah, but I think it's, it's, uh, um, yeah, but it, I suppose people who are, um, you know, just feel like they don't trust the powers that be, um, 
or, you know, I think there's a link between that and being suspicious of getting a vaccine. And, you know, maybe just depending on who's on the ins and who's on the outs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that's when the left or the right, you know, you get the switches between who's the one that doesn't trust the powers that be. That's true. And, you know, that kind of feeds into that idea of conspiracy theories and who's kind of out to get you. And, you know, at some point we should do maybe a, a topical bonus show where we talk about conspiracy. I mean, conspiracy theories, yeah. that's right up my wheelhouse. I, you know, maybe we should do that sometime. Um, but maybe I'd we should to. move on. Yeah. OK, so you're on board, too. OK, well, listen, yeah. we'll have to do you know, Let us know, uh, you know, on, on uh, Discord of what you guys think about that. Um, one last thing that we want to get to before we close the show out is, is that this Friday, President Biden signed an executive order uh, in paneling a commission to examine uh, the Supreme Court and other federal judiciary reforms. Now, among many on the left, uh, and this has been a topic conversation between uh, you and me, Ken, uh, has been have wanted to see some changes on the Supreme Court after Ginsburg was replaced uh, by Amy Barrett. Uh, Trump, of course, was able to end up replacing three Supreme Court nominees, uh, and the last, the very, you know, the last possible moment uh, is is Barrett. And I think that was seen. I, I don't think it was seen as a steal by many on the left after the rhetoric of Republicans holding up the Obama appointee as we moved into the Trump, uh, as you might recall. You know, Republicans wanted to hold that seat open because they thought that the or theoretically, they argued that they thought that the election should decide uh, who's going to get to make that uh, nomination. At the time, I argued personally that that was dumb for Republicans to argue the majority controls. They should just make that argument and say, we control, we get to do what they do. They didn't go my way because for whatever reason, they don't pay me or employ me. You know, so anyway, they didn't pay any attention. Uh, and so but then when it came around, this then required them to awkwardly kind of flip their narrative language and say, well, it's not. Well, we've already won the election. You know, we don't have to wait for uh, uh, Biden to take office. Uh, and so liberal activists, one response to this has been um, uh, increasing the size of the court. So along with President Biden's uh, executive order creating a commission, um, the progressive uh, group Demand Justice continued to up the ante and the pressure on Biden by launching what they're calling the Breyer Retire Campaign, arguing it's time uh, for Justice Breyer to step down. Now, this is something that Biden uh, has says he's not interested in, not in replacing Breyer, but in specifically changing the size of the court. Uh, and Breyer, who is 82 uh, and appointed by President Bill Clinton in 94, argued that liberal groups shouldn't take that path. They shouldn't go down the route of kind of monkeying with the structural changes to the federal court or specifically to the Supreme Court. Uh, recently in his talk uh, to Harvard Law School, he said that the, the purpose of his talk was to, quote, make those whose initial instincts may favor important structural changes, such as forms of court packing, think long and hard before embodying those changes in law, end quote. Now, historically, you know, we're kind of still on the par, but I understand why I think Republicans or, or excuse me, uh, Democrats are a little upset, uh, upset. Now, just for a little history lesson, uh, Washington still holds the record for the most ever uh, nom- uh, Supreme Court nominees. He gets 12 successful nominations. Uh, but in the modern era, two to four is a typical number. So it wasn't like Trump had a ton more than uh, his predecessors. You know, Reagan had four. George H.W. Bush had two. Clinton had two. George W. had two, Obama had two, and then finally Trump ends up um, uh, getting three. And then I was thinking about it as people talked about the age of Breyer. You know, he's 82. Maybe it's time for him to step down. Uh, but of course, Joe Biden is 78. So it might be hard for him to be like, listen, Breyer, you got to retire, man. You're just too old. Uh, so I mean, especially if he's thinking about running for reelection, because he'd be running for reelection at the same age, he'd be asking Breyer to step down, which is another 
weird, you know, circumstance. So what do you, so what do you think about, uh, I mean, this, this is your area, right? Yeah. So well, what for, do you think first, about these Reagan only got three, not, uh, not four. And, uh, um, uh, and Trump only had one term. So getting three in one term is like getting six for two terms. So that's a, that's a highly disproportionate <laughs> I number. I guess that's true. That's that true. That's true. I was um, just thinking uh, in terms of each it, president, but you're right. They are different in the number they had. But of course, yeah. you know, H.W. Bush only had one term as well. So I was, I was being yeah. equally, uh, yeah, HW Bush and he got in two. That sense. Right? Yeah, yeah, HW Bush got two, two, he had two in one term. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and then both, um, uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Clinton, um, and Obama only had two apiece across two terms. So that's only one per term. Um, but but yeah, on the, on the bigger issue, you know, I, I I believe that um, Breyer um will be retiring this summer, and I I don't think it's it's that crazy of an ask for for Biden to ask for that because uh, even though as you said they're the same age, the the difference is that um. Biden has a four-year term. Supreme Court justice has life tenure, right. and life tenure is not worth as much at that age, you know, <laughs> as, as it would be for somebody much younger. Um, and and I think I, even Breyer's got to believe that Ruth Bader Ginsburg made a big mistake um, hanging on as long as she did. Um, and although I I do believe that seat was stolen, um, nonetheless it wouldn't have been able to be stolen if she would have retired uh, when when um, Obama was still president, which she certainly should have done. So I, I I actually think that's a subtext in Breyer's remarks at Harvard this week. I think when when Breyer goes and makes a speech at Harvard against uh, court packing, against doing things crazy, changing the structure of the court. Um, I actually think there's a subtext in that that he's saying you don't have to do that. I am going to retire. You can replace me. Um, uh, um, Biden will get to make a nomination this summer, even without doing all this crazy stuff. So um, I, I think that he will. Um, so, um, yeah, and I, I also agree with um, uh, Justice Breyer's point. Um, uh, I, I don't I'm not in favor of expanding the Supreme Court beyond nine. And I, I did a special um, with Michael one time uh, where we talked through all this stuff. So I'm on record on the politics guys saying that um, uh, we did a special Supreme Court special uh, for the for the subscriber show. Um, but what I think is um, that this commission can do is um, suggest a number of very good ideas probably none of which will get codified into law because most of these ideas can't be done without, um, uh, you know, if they're filibusterable, right? right? So the only, the which only we way talked about the beginning them, of the, yeah, the show. Yeah. 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 So the, the only way these are not, these are not spending items that can be done on reconciliation. So the, the only, the only real way um, that any of these commission, this commission's ideas could get codified into law would be either if um, 10 Republicans go along with it, which seems very unlikely, um, or if um, the Dems break the filibuster, which seems similarly unlikely, I think, at this point. So well, now you've um, had what, three Democrats now come out and say that they are not in favor of that. Was it? I thought it was only Manchin and uh, Cinema. Is there a third? I thought there were. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna check myself there. I, yeah. I, I might have said three, maybe it's just two. Two. But Manchin uh, doubled remember. down on Manchin doubled down again on it this week. Um, he made a fresh round of statements that he's not going to break. The yeah, film. it could have just been I was seeing it yeah. for a new time and I'm counting it wrong. I'm, yeah, yeah, but, but mm, any, I think careful. it's not going to yeah. happen. So, so, so I, I guess the value of a commission like this uh, to me, and I think it's it's valuable, but it's within that limited range of the kind of executive orders that we're talking about. It's just going to you know get people talking about things. It's going to generate ideas. It's not really going to come into law, but. But I think there are some structural changes that would be beneficial. I don't think expanding Supreme Court size is one of them. I do think expanding the size of the appellate court, the circuit courts would be one of them. Um, I, I, you know, those have been expanded a number of times in the past. There's nothing magical about the numbers of judges that sit on the circuit courts. And uh, in fact, the caseloads have increased quite a lot 
since the last time um, the, the, those numbers were increased. And, you know, the Supreme Court, their case law never increases because they get to decide what cases to take. But the circuit courts have to take all these cases. So I think there's good justification for expanding those. I think there's some justification, and people have talked about this, for um, that even though the all federal judges, including Supreme Court justices, get life tenure, um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's unconstitutional to rotate them off the Supreme Court. Right. So um, so there's some proposals for that to have a fixed term of years on the Supreme Court, after which the, the Supreme Court justice, they don't have to retire. They're still a federal judge, but they'd be rotated down to a circuit court or a federal district court. Um, so that that's a proposal people have talked about. Um, and I think it would be constitutional. It hasn't been done before. But I think these kind of discussions are good because they keep people thinking about the role of the Supreme Court. Um, public opinion could change in ways that. Um, would, you know, if there ends up being any kind of bipartisan support in public opinion, then in the long run, that could lead to some some bipartisan support in, in, in Congress, um, not in the immediate run, I don't think. Um, and also, I think it, it exerts a little pressure on the court. And one of the most interesting things that I've, I think we've been seeing this term in the Supreme Court is that, um, you know, after all the concern about uh, Trump appointing three justices and and Barrett stealing the seat, and these are all concerns I very much shared. Um, I think as I watch the behavior of the current court, the Trumpy justices on the court right now are Thomas and Alito, the ones that Trump didn't appoint. You know, those are the Trumpy justices on the court. And and if you look at the actual behavior of of Amy Coney Barrett or even Brett Kavanaugh on the court who were the two that had the most controversial confirmation hearings, you know, Gorsuch's was a relatively smooth sale compared to them. Um, uh, they're, they're behaving, you know, in the, in the John Roberts mold. They're, they're not really behaving like, like Trumpy justices at all. And I, I think that partly is because of all the, the public attention. Now, it may also be because the federal society types who chose them really weren't all that Trumpy. And so you're seeing like a little bit of a difference, you know, in terms of See, what Trump thought he was getting and what well, he actually got. I think right there, you, you've hit the nail on the head right there, right? I mean, he made a promise that he was going to, you know, get me into office. I'm going to make sure you get your, your, uh, nominees. And, and I think one of the things that probably went a little bit unnoticed on the left was why they still don't agree. You know, this, these weren't Trump people. These, th- th- this was Trump get, saying, I'm going to do this so that he can have power. That's all he cared about. He didn't care about these nominees. He didn't, I mean, he cared about the issue of the Supreme Court only because it gave him a way to try to get more moderate Republicans on board with his more radical nomination uh, to scare them into what would be the nominee if you would have had a a Hillary Clinton. And, you know, I mean, the one and the only thing that I think that he did that, uh, you know, kind of advanced a lot of conservative agendas in a more traditional way was electing the nominating these individuals and getting them appointed. But you're right. The idea that they were going to be somehow like many Trumps, that was never going to be the case. And it's not not happening. And I think Alito is the closest to that on the court. And he's not a Trump uh, appointee. And and, uh, yeah. And and so uh, so I think you had a center right court already and it's still a center right court. It hasn't become a far right court. Um, And uh, um, so that's interesting, too, I think. But I think that that um, is, you know, Maybe it wouldn't happen anyhow because of who these justices are. But I but I also think it helps, you know, if Biden um, does things like put this commission in and the commission's always talking about the court. I think that that level of being in a fishbowl for the court will help keep it in the center right rather than moving to the far right. So I think that's good also. 
Well, and you know, that's that will be something worth seeing. You know, the court has generally wanted to not be in the light, right? They don't want to have things talking or doing about them because a lot of their power comes from that mystery mystique that, you know, like we wear the robes and we don't let cameras in and we do these kinds of things. Um, so you're right. If, if this becomes a talking point that gets taken up and actually gets some attention, then that might make some changes. You know, as a, as a scholar of political communication, I don't think, you know, commissions like this generally, you know, they get they, they make a little bit of a splash when they happen. They sometimes make a little bit of a splash when they when they find something or they make some kind of report. Um, but I, I wouldn't be bending you know, if you were asking me, you know, what's the amount of uh, what is what's the amount of media attention this is going to get hereafter? You know, I'd be shorting them. I would. You know, <laughs> I, well, wouldn't be. No, no, I, I agree with that. But the one caveat I'd make to that is it's the, the, the Supreme Court. You know, they also care about attention from the legal community, from the legal academic community. It's not only attention oh, from Fox I, News. OK, right? I yeah, was thinking yeah. you meant from like voters. Well, you for, were... yeah, for, for different constituencies, right? Different okay. constituencies. Yeah. I think the Supreme Court is is as responsive to some esoteric constituencies as to the general public. Right. Okay, and so I, so I all you. of those things can put some pressure on the on the Supreme Court. OK. And on that, there, that there's is truth to that. Well, Ken, it's been a lot of fun doing the show with you and, uh, you know, trying some new things out. So I hope I hope this has been fun. Yeah, we did it on Zoom instead of uh, uh, Skype today. So That's we'll right. tell us if it sounds right, and uh, <laughs> and, and we should w- we should wish. Although although they may listen any day, we should wish them all a happy uh, um, Apotomix Courthouse Day. Today is the anniversary <laughs> oh, of the day. Didn't realize that. Didn't <laughs> yeah, realize yeah, that. Yeah. Well, and that's true. You know, I want to thank everybody for listening, and but I also want to let you know. Yes, we are we are doing a little bit of an experiment today. So uh, for supporters, you're going to get a chance potentially. We'll see how this all works out. But if it all works out. Uh, um, you're going to get to see myself and Ken uh, on a video vlog podcast version of it. I don't know, whatever the kids are calling it these days, a vlog. Um, but um, so if you're interested in that, you know, we always at the end of the show always ask for support. And and whether this works out awesome or not, um, one of the great things is we have some really just phenomenal supporters. And one of the things you're going to definitely get one way or the other is our full length supporters only uh, Wednesday show. Uh, and so as soon as we get done with with uh, uh, this, we're going to move on to that. We're going to be talking about that big Amazon union vote. Uh, we're going to talk about a dissent. Uh, we're kind of taking a look at Oracle v. Google. Um, we're going to talk about some of the crazy sex lives of Florida congressmen. You know, <laughs> why is it always to be Florida? Right? Florida man <laughs> runs for office and then Vimo's, you know, sex money. Well, we're going to be talking about that on the show. Uh, so if you are interested in any of that, you're going to gain access to those things by becoming a supporter. We also, and I've mentioned it in the show, we have the Discord channel. Uh, and if you'd like to uh, chat with me or Mike, as a matter of fact, some of the things I was going to do in the show or I was kind of thinking about, I was sharing it on the Discord channel. It's been a lot of fun to kind of engage in that. Uh, so I would lo- uh, I'd love for you to be part of the Discord. So if you want to become a supporter or you want to learn about the other benefits of supporting the politics guys, you can actually check out our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash politics guys. That's patreon.com slash politics guys. Or you can just go over to politicsguys.com slash support. So join me and Ken again on Wednesday for our bonus show where we follow Florida man and all of the crazy things he does uh, by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you'd like to share with me, Ken, or any of the other politics guys, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. 
The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Nathan Salznowski, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkinson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show. I hope you'll join us then.